So the passage uh, I picked out for today, what was hot in my heart, is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 8. This is the Apostle Mark's account of what is known as the transfiguration. The transfiguration. It's the astonishing event when Christ manifested a glimpse of his radiance high up on a mountain. Maybe a better way to describe the event is his supernatural glory was unveiled, unveiled to three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John. The transfiguration itself is also recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, that's verses 28 to 36, and we'll be referencing those in a minute or so. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, and then it's referred to in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18. And each of these gospel accounts brings something unique, something unique to a miraculous event. And the net effect of the whole of the three gospel descriptions, as is always true with God's word, the more I'm in it, the more I see this, it's always true of God's word. You see a harmonious spirit-inspired picture that should produce in us awe and reverence. Today we're going to look carefully at Mark the Mark account, please open your Bibles now and let's read from God's word as recorded by Mark, beginning in verse 2, chapter 9. After six days, Jesus took him, Peter, with him, Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Well, in my preparations for preaching this passage, I kept thinking about superheroes. More specifically, I kept wondering about why our American culture seems wholly obsessed with superheroes. And you know, as the masters of providing people with what they want as entertainment... Hollywood has invested deeply in superhero themes and storylines, have they not? We have X-Men, we have Avengers, we seem to be adding new hero personalities all the time, each one ever more unique and more awesome in their powers. We add those to the original cadre of heroes, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, others. These characters never seem to leave us, they just come back to us repackaged and often in troubling ways for Christians because they come back with ever more progressive social attitudes, right? And those really reflect a descending culture. And for the record, I'm not superhero, anti-superhero, I should say, Uh, nor am I advocating anybody go cold turkey on the Avengers. That would not happen in my house. But aside from uh, offering you some strong counsel to be wise and discerning about errant doctrine, that's so prevalent and so aggressively pushed in Hollywood productions. It's fine to enjoy a good action movie. But what I am wanting you to think for a second about this morning is the question, why? Why do we seem to find superheroes so fascinating? Why? Well, I, I'm wanting you to think for a second, 
Um, and it's rather simple. It, it's also, I think, powerfully telling about our human nature. God chose to make human beings uniquely in his image. We are unique. We're the only ones made in his image. And because we're made in his image and we reflect our creator, we're drawn to the heroic. We know nobility when we see it. And it brings us to tears, does it not? The, the recent 75th anniversary celebration of the Normandy invasion, D-Day, is a perfect case in point. Everybody agrees that was a noble thing. Why? Because superheroes are essentially people who, in reflecting the character of God, give of themselves, often putting their own life at great risk for the greater good of others. Moreover, we really like superheroes that have power, that have supernatural powers. We want someone who can save us from the things that we cannot save ourselves from. And we want these saviors to be transcendent, which means existing above and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. We want them to be powerful. We want powerful saviors. We want powerful heroes. And in a way, we can never be. But we also like our superheroes to be uh, reacting to us in a manner that they don't require anything of us except maybe a thank you. Evil threats are dealt with and we just go on with our lives, whether holy or sinful, until the next time we need help. We want safety without real accountability. We want made-to-order gods. Well, I want you to see from the scripture this morning that Jesus Christ eternally existing so far above any things human beings might make to order. He, if you like, is the one and only true superhero. He alone can save us, and he alone has every supernatural skill and ability. He made it all. He is God, and he lives, and he's real. Please hear that this morning. I also want you to see that anything less than faith in Christ alone is seeking a counterfeit that will ultimately disappoint. Boy, is this ever true when we ask mere mortals, fellow humans, to be superheroes in the role of elected official or maybe coronated king. Too many believe that men or women can save a fallen world by virtue of high office. Too many hope for great wisdom when we grant power. We have a great nation. We have a wonderful election system. We have a democracy. It's a republic. Those are all good things, but we have to be careful about putting too much hope in men. History always proves otherwise. How often do we need to be reminded that there is no hope in men? Finally, I want you to see that when Jesus saves us, he also has a marvelous plan for us. We are bought with a price, the Bible says, and so we are eternally his, and therefore our Status and position changes when we're converted by his grace alone. And our faith response in Christ's amazing grace means also that we're called to a mission that he gives us. So with salvation comes a mission. In this, we gain purpose with accountability. Purpose with accountability. And purpose with accountability brings both joy and grief. It brings both joy and grief. That's the Christian walk. So just as the way of the cross was Christ's unimaginable grief, 
but was done for the joy that was set before him, so will our path as Christians be. But all of it, all of it, is for God's glory and for our unfathomable good. God's glory and our good. All right. All that's introduction. (laughs) We're going to go into the scripture now. The transfiguration event occurred right after two vitally important context-setting events in the flow of Mark's gospel. The first event was what scholars refer to as Peter's confession. And the second was Jesus telling the disciples he was going to suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders and be put to death. Peter's confession is found in the Gospel of Mark 8.29. Most scholars agree this specific moment represents a high mark in Mark's narrative, sort of the high water mark. Peter, in response to Jesus' question, but who do you say that I am, declared, you are the Christ. So everything in Mark that came before Peter's declaration leads up to it, says John MacArthur, and everything that followed afterward flows from it. To acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God, as it says in Matthew 16, 16, is to make the correct judgment concerning him. In the coming transfiguration, Peter's affirmation of faith will be confirmed and verified by sight. Hold on to that thought for a second. When the Lord of all allows his divine glory to become visible to these three men. Well, so no sooner had Peter made his confession than Jesus, in verse 831, I'm quoting from Scripture, began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, Peter, in this moment, despaired of this revelation, and in his immaturity, he even dared rebuke Jesus. Of course, Jesus sharply rebuked him back, forcefully telling him, what? Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. That's verse 33. Ouch. Wouldn't want that from our Lord, from the eternal God. But Peter was reeling in his contemplation of a murdered Messiah. And he was reflecting the sentiment of the 12. Peter and the remaining disciples had anticipated long promised renewal. The glory of the kingdom of God. But the idea that renewal was coming through Jesus' death was anathema to them. As one writer put it, it was incomprehensible and unacceptable. Moreover, Jesus said unsettling things to the disciples about their own future as well. They're told, in verse 34, to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. And they're told that saving their life meant losing it for the sake of the gospel. In verse 35, this is confusing to them, but... After breaking the bad news of his coming death, Jesus began to lovingly apply the balm of encouragement as only he could. Only he could. And in just the right dosage, needed to keep those disciples growing in their understanding of him and for the express purpose of preparing them, preparing them for all that lay ahead. 
As recorded in Mark 8:38, Jesus told them that the Son of Man will one day come in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. They're trying to sort all this out. Well, six days later, the scripture tells us Jesus gave a power dose of glory-filled encouragement on a mountain. And it was to three selected disciples, Peter, James, and John. So verse 2 from our passage today says this. Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Stop there. I want to highlight three important things that came to me through the research and prayer about this very, very short description. Um, Scriptures can be so matter-of-fact sometimes. It just lays out what happened. And then when you start to unpack it, it really is tremendously powerful. Three things. First, Jesus picked just the three men to go up with him and see and experience a sight that the other disciples would only hear descriptions of. Why these three? Well, Peter, James, and John were an inner circle of sorts, Jesus' most intimate friends. They were very close to Christ. In addition, Peter was more the leader figure among the 12. And in many respects, uh, James and John were, were close because they were, they were literally blood brothers. They were the sons of thunder. Interestingly, Jesus chose these same three to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane, the time when he was in his most dire hour, anticipating the cross. So these three were set apart. But there's something else really important I want you to see here, and that is that in accordance with the Old Testament law, chronicled in Deuteronomy, truth, truth is confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. The legal principle is replete. It's throughout all of Scripture. It's particularly repeated in the New Testament teachings about, let's say, for example, church discipline, accusations against an elder. In some, there was great intentionality in Jesus' choosing the three, and specifically these three. Second, it's important to consider why Jesus led them up a high mountain. Most uh, commentaries, most scholars who look at this believe that this high mountain was Mount Hermon, which is now a 9,000-foot peak on what is now the Lebanon-Syria border. 9,000 feet. There's really important symbolism in there following Jesus up. What I have no doubt was an arduous hike. So our local flat top is about three and a half miles. It's about 1,500 feet of elevation. The text doesn't tell us how high up Jesus led these men, but it does say high mountain. And this indicates it was likely the summit. And so the hike was no doubt physically challenging, and it probably took the better part of a day or more to get to their high destination. Well, I'm a would-be climber hiker. (laughs) I'm always trailing my more fit family members up the trails. And so I'm just trying to put myself in their shoes, and I'm guessing there were temptations swirling around in the minds of these three disciples, depending on their fitness level. Slow down, Jesus. Can we stop here? I can almost hear them huffing and puffing as they follow Jesus up. Ever higher. But again, Jesus knew what they needed, and so he led them up. And through whatever physical and mental pain barriers, they had to will themselves through. 
They were making choices going up. They were following Jesus. And I think the picture of them fixing their eyes on the Christ as they followed him upward is a super important one. Point three, the destination up high is important too. Commentator Kent Hughes does a convincing job of explaining the importance of the breathtaking majesty and beauty of this high place. It was likely seen by them at dusk. So they're seeing a picture of a a view with the sky that's darkening and stars. The majesty of creation. It's an Alaska-level magnificence for sure, but a magnificence that required tremendous effort and perseverance to reach as they were led up by Christ. It was really the perfect dramatic setting where they could breathe afresh and think clearly, maybe, above the cares and brokenness so far below. Up high, people will say, I can see eternity from up here. In a very real sense, these three men were about to see eternity in a way they, they couldn't guess. Ostensibly, they went up to pray with Jesus, but they were soon to get a transcendent encouragement, a perfectly timed encouragement, and something they sorely needed right then, but would also need large doses of. They would need to draw from encouragement over and over and over again in the weeks and months and years to come. So we have three disciples, we have Jesus with them, and we're up in a high, majestic place. Let's look next at the end of verse 2 and verse 3. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Luke 9 offers a little bit more detail, saying that it happened while Jesus was praying, and that the disciples were struggling to stay awake when it began. Luke 9.29 also offers its unique description of the unveiling glory, saying, And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Matthew 17.2 described it this way. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. Well, the fact that the disciples were struggling to stay awake, uh, probably worth a quick analysis. There were a couple things going on with these guys. I think they were both physically spent, and they were also emotionally depleted. You'll all probably resonate to some degree with the idea that sleep can relieve us from pressure and sadness. One writer said it like this, and I'm quoting, sorrow will make you take a nap. The disciples were devastated by the grim reality of Jesus having to die, A broken heart will make you go to sleep because you want to get out of it. You want to escape. You want to walk away. You want relief, end quote. So I think this small factual detail does seem a profound insight into the minds of the three, Peter, James, and John. And then what happened? Transcendent glory came. Jesus was transfigured before them. Jesus was transfigured before them. We need to put the transfiguration in the same category as all of the Old Testament glorious appearances of God. We know that from Exodus 33, verses 17 to 23, that a human being cannot see God's face and survive. God said as much to Moses, who 
had asked God, as recorded in this passage, to show him his glory. Do you remember that? But in the light of the reality of his glory that kills people with overwhelming power, God has chosen from time to time to graciously appear, but he does it in confined and limited and restrained ways, just as he did with Moses. It's an act of grace. Do you remember the Exodus scene? He placed Moses in the cleft of the rock and allowed a non-lethal view of his glory. In this moment of grace, we can't miss the veiled power and the restraint shown by transcendent God. Just seeing a limited view of God, Moses was physically changed by the event, and that's in Exodus 34. Moses' face shown as a reflection of God's glory to the extent that people feared him. People feared him. And he felt compelled to cover it up. So these are partial revelations of God, and they're called theophanies, and they're always accomplished graciously and lovingly, always, with the purpose of strengthening faith, increasing understanding, and encouraging obedience. When God chooses to manifest himself in a way that is tangible to the human senses, it is a visible display that expresses not just his presence, but also his almighty nature and his righteous character. He always has a purpose in it. Some other examples, just to throw out to you, includes the thunderous display at the top of Mount Sinai, that's Exodus 19, the burning bush in Exodus 3, the appearances to Abraham in Genesis 15, 17, and 18, to Isaac in Genesis 26, and then to Jacob in Genesis 28. There's the cloud of fire in the wilderness, Exodus 14, and then again in chapter 40, and then in Numbers 9. Isaiah's vision, Randy read that this morning. Ezekiel's vision in Ezekiel 1, and then John's vision of God in the New Testament on his throne in Revelation 4. There's profound consistency in all these cases, in that they're rare, they're personal, and they are specific and purposeful, and they are effective. They are effective. So the transfiguration of Jesus represents a New Testament example of God in his glory, manifested in a way that was tangible to the human senses. The three disciples got to see glory with their own eyes. This was Christ being fully God in a manner the disciples could now see. So far in his ministry, think about this for a second. There was considerable evidence that Jesus was God by what he did, but there was limited evidence in looking at him, if any at all, Nobody could see any difference in him on the outside, and yet, as Pastor Jeff showed us from Hebrews 1, 3, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the brightness of the Father's glory. He is God manifest. And what is so awesome here is that Christ is the purest revelation of God. And in this temporal moment, three guys, three men, three disciples, three physically worn out and emotionally depleted men got to see this revelation supernaturally intensified. Why? Why? Well, it was really in order to accomplish the noblest of missions, Christ's mission, the Lord of glory, the fully God and fully man, unique one, possessing all the attributes of the Trinity contained within him. 
He purposely veiled his glory through his life such that people would have to come to the conclusion that he was God, that he is God by what he did and by what he said about what he did, not because of how he appeared. Think about that for a second. Not because of how how he appeared. They had to come by faith. And the disciples were getting there. The disciples got to that point of faith walking with him. Peter had just confessed. Remember, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, said Peter. But now they found themselves comprehending catastrophe ahead. They were headed toward the cross, and they just had a hard time with this. Jesus would suffer, and they themselves would suffer. And so they needed more in that moment than maybe their flagging faith that they had to hang on to. And Jesus knew this. And so he gave them a vision. He gave them a sight. He gave them a visible manifestation of glory to hold on to in just the right amount. R.C. Sproul described the light that flowed out of Jesus this way. It was pure and white. Philosophers argue that color is secondary, not primary. It does not inhere in a substance, but is added to the substance by the presence of light. Where does color come from? It comes from light, from the sun. And all the hues of the rainbow are found in the pure light of the sun. But when all these colors are mixed together in the purity of light, we have absolute whiteness. Thus, it is not surprising that the light that flowed out of Jesus was an intensity beyond that of the sun, was of purest white, end quote. The author of Hebrews aptly described Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, as, and we read this, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus does not just reflect God's glory, a glory that kills, remember, he is the brightness of the glory of God. Let's turn now to verse 4. And then, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What is going on here? Why Elijah? Why Moses? What were they talking about? Well, Luke's gospel tells us the conversation was about Jesus's sorrow-filled but necessary path through Jerusalem to the cross. Luke 9.31 says this, they spoke of his departure, which was about which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So the three were agreeing on the necessity and unalterable nature of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, suffering, rejection, and then a despicable, scornful death. Why was Elijah there? He was there because he represents the prophets of the Old Testament. Why was Moses there? He was there because he represents the law, the conditional Mosaic covenant. And both of these chosen leaders clearly understood the mission and purpose of the Messiah. They knew that Jesus had to die, and they knew why. And so they came to the second person of the Trinity, bringing him comfort and encouragement, reminding him of his destiny Interestingly, a destiny that they each in their own walk with God on earth had foretold centuries earlier. Matthew's gospel recorded Jesus saying this in chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, starting in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the the prophets. I have come 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Jesus was about to set his face towards Jerusalem. Agony awaited. Agony. Elijah and Moses represented God's unchanging grace plan from the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis 3.15. And now Jesus was just days away from finishing the sacrifice sacrificial sin debt work of this plan, this unchanging plan, this unchanging plan that only the covenant-keeping God himself could do. Much bigger picture here, always, going on. Here is one more reality about this encounter that made me marvel at God's grace and his loving kindness. Elijah, as you recall from Second Kings, was taken up to heaven by God. And this was at the end of his profound time as a prophet where he's coming against idolatry. He's speaking the truth. It was arduous. It was a difficult ministry. Isn't it wonderful to consider that this prophet of whom God had asked so much was able to set foot in the Holy Land once again in this transfiguration moment. Moses, he too was honored in that he, after being denied entrance into the promised land because of his disobedience, that's chronicle in Numbers uh, twenty twelve. he stood there at last after centuries. Wow. Both examples remind me of how we are correct, and it's poignant that we honor our nation's war veterans, people who serve. It's really special to remember the commitment and the valor of those who selflessly answer a call. So here's God in his amazing efficiency and his loving kindness and his grace. He's honoring Elijah and Moses in their glorified bodies even as he continues to use them for his always higher purposes. One more thing. The participation of Elijah and Moses should also give us hope of the promise of eternal life. We're promised glorified bodies. We're promised that. And we're, con- we're promised continuing ongoing fellowship with God. This is a view of heaven that's not some boring picture with clouds and harps and angels' wings, is it? This is a picture of family intimacy, of eternal physical and spiritual health, and of work yet to be done. Work yet to be done. And that work is for the unequal purpose of bringing ever more glory to God. That's a heaven I want to get excited about. All right, let's look at verses 5 and 6, which gives us an insight in the impressions and reactions of the three disciples, their eyewitnessing glory. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Well, Mark is rather blunt in verse 6. Peter, again, representing the three, was both terrified and shocked to the point of confusion. He did not know what to say. And of course, Peter being Peter, he kind of went and blurted out something anyway. The tone of this verse gives the impression that uh, he kind of said the first thing that came to his mind. So perhaps his words might be discounted as some commentators have discounted those words. Described as babbling or thinking without forethought. Well, I think because the Holy Spirit sought to preserve these exact words, it's important we look a little deeper. 
Peter is saying, Master, it is good for us to be here, was, in my view, revealing willful ignorance of the purpose for which Jesus came. I think his suggestion was wholly unreasonable. Build three tabernacles. I think it exposed his self-focused desire to usher in the kingdom of God right then and there. Seeing Jesus in transfigured form and then Elijah and Moses in glorified form, this probably fueled a false hope in him so that they could skip all the suffering and get right to the happy ending. Wow, that's wishful thinking. Peter was wishing away the scandal of the cross. And we do that from time to time, don't we? We don't like to consider that the path to right is through pain. But such thinking in this case fails to acknowledge the unspeakable catastrophe of human sin that only God himself could conquer. Hebrews 9, 11 to 12, straight from Jeff's sermon last week, explains the spilling of Jesus' blood as necessary. He, Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood was necessary. Well, Peter missed on one more really important point. By elevating Elijah and Moses to be, in a sense, equals with Jesus, at least in his suggestion that they get a tabernacle, Peter was actually disrespecting Jesus' high office, the Messiah, the Son of God, And he was disrespecting the dignity of Christ. So Peter missed on on the position of Christ and he missed on the purpose of the suffering Savior. And he needed correction. And here comes God the Father, bringing it quickly and convincingly in verse 7. Let me read that. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Peter needed to hear the sovereign's correction. He needed to hear an admonition. And God the Father came with authority and clarity. They were there. They were engulfed in a bright cloud of glory, symbolizing the Lord's presence. And God perfectly addressed Peter's two misunderstandings. In the same voice and using the same words already expressed at Jesus' baptism, God the Father, the first member of the Trinity, confirm Peter's own confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. What does he say? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son, said God the Father. And guess what? I thought this was really cool. (laughs) Remember the principle of the three witnesses needed to testify to a truth? We now have three credible witnesses to confirm this most essential truth. This is my son, We have Elijah, we have Moses, and we have God the Father. Credible witnesses, credible witnesses to be sure. Peter and James and John soon enough 
The remaining disciples, and in God's timing, Paul is added, and then all of the Jews and all of the Gentiles, and ultimately all of humanity, which gets to you and to me this morning, each one of us, each created person, must rightly judge this Jesus to be God's only begotten Son. And therefore, with that judgment, trust him to be the one worthy of following at all costs, at all costs, even unto death, even unto death. This is why the father followed his confirmation, this is my beloved son, with a command. Listen to him. Listen to him. Listen to him means obey him. The kingdom will come in its due time, but right now, Listen, Peter, listen, James, listen, John, listen to what Jesus is saying about his suffering path and his sacrificial death. And then obey him in the mission that he gives you, even if it's unto death. The cross must come before the glory, the road to the kingdom must go through Jerusalem. Praise God and his immeasurable grace that Peter's awkwardness in the moment proved forgivable. I see Peter... In me, I see myself in Peter. I'm grateful for God's grace in my own life. But he was overwhelmed. Holy fear mixed with stunning, exhilarating wonder at the most divine and incomprehensible experience of his life. That's how one writer put it. And Peter would have his ups and downs going forward. But what happened? Peter stuck with the plan and his faith grew. And he was ever equipped by his loving Savior all along the way. And Peter died a blessed martyr. In the end, having advanced the church incomparably, we should take heart when we see that. Bible exposition should really help us see ourselves right there in the actual moment. That's why I really appreciate Jeff. He does such a good job. And I hope this morning you're thinking about Peter. You're trying to imagine if you were there yourself, how you might respond. But we know that this transfiguration event did in time have its planned effect on Peter, even if he was totally flummoxed in the moment. In 2 Peter 1, 16 to 18, let me read this. This is Peter later in his ministry. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was born to him by majestic glory, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, so that voice was God and this is Peter referring to the transfiguration event. The father spoke, the correction was laid down and then then what do we see? Verse eight, the last verse, we're almost to the end. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. It was over. It was over. The disciples had been given an encouragement gift that would give them now eyewitness credibility on mission, the mission that Jesus gives them going forward. There's no cleverly devised myths here. There's no ambiguity. Three witnesses saw it all, and they could therefore confirm the truth of it. But they did get a preview of the kingdom. And now the quietness in the moment meant that it's not coming for a while. And they were left with only Jesus. And he was no longer in glorious form. 
But Jesus alone would lead them on the road to his death on the cross, and they would follow. They would follow. That was the plan. It was being delivered perfectly. And that, as one commentator put it, was the message the apostles eventually preached. They preached Christ. They preached him crucified and risen again. So necessary. Someday, said one commentator, according to Philippians, we will appear ourselves in a body like unto his glorious body. Someday we'll have that experience. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we suffer for the sake of the cross and we suffer for the sake of the gospel because it's suffering and then glory. Disciples had a hard time with the cross. But they got the message. They figured it out. They hung in there. They persevered. Jesus gave them encouragement, gave them what they needed. This isn't a standalone get there from here, tell me how it works out in the end deal. We walk with the living God. These disciples applied truth to their life circumstances, and the life circumstances were always orchestrated sovereignly by God. This is a picture of our own sanctification. James 1, verses 2 to 4, says this about our Christian journey. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God's kingdom will come. God's kingdom will come. Well, we've covered a a lot in a short time this morning, so I want to leave you with five points of application. Point number one, believe. Jesus is all you need. There is no hope in men, and there are no such things as superheroes. Point two, follow. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and follow his lead. If he's taking you up a steep climb... Trust, obey, and persevere because the view at the top will be worth it. Point three, trust. Prepare to be surprised and overwhelmed at what Jesus has done and will continue to do for you. He is God. He's God. And as believers, we'll have all of eternity to learn that we can never learn all there is to learn about his majesty. So far above us in his transcendence. Four, obey. Appreciate Jesus' amazing grace and grow in this grace. There is no time for pity parties in the Christian walk, I believe. We want to strive to be the martyred version of Peter and not the many foolish versions, but be a learner as you strive. The last point, number five, love. I personally am so thankful the Lord did not skip the cross. It was there that God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This love is astounding, folks. This love is incomparable. And we should be ever more compelled to love him back. I pray that as you just enjoy Father's Day, you consider the cost. You consider the price Jesus paid for you. And if you're not a Christian, Come talk to one of the pastors or elders. 
We'd love to meet with you. We'd love to give you the gospel. It is the only life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for the worship. Thank you for the participation. Thank you for the videos. Thank you for the singing. Lord, it's all about you. And uh, we just want to humbly lay it all at your feet this morning. And uh, just thank you. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for being a living God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.